You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show... Patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. As Emmanuel Macron warns against the dangers of nationalism, is the French leader the last hope of Europe's liberal left-wing governments? Identity crisis. Poland's leaders join far-right groups on the march celebrating 100 years of the country's independence. An unofficial ceasefire in Gaza could collapse after Israeli forces killed 10 Palestinians in a botched undercover operation. I'll be discussing these stories with my guests Daniela Peled and Quentin Peel. Also, have you ever wanted to leave your job but lack the guts to walk out? We'll be looking at a new service which quits on your behalf. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pellet. She's the managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and Quentin Peel, associate fellow at Chatham House and contributor for the FT. Welcome to both of you. Now, the French president Emmanuel Macron used a ceremony in Paris marking the centenary of the First World War armistice to warn against what he called the dangers of rising nationalism. Speaking before 60 world leaders at the tomb of the unknown soldier, the president urged countries to find new ways to build peace and work together in the face of dangerous populism and selfish nationalism. Were his remarks a veiled but pointed reference to Donald Trump and his unashamedly America-first policy? Or is President Macron positioning himself as the last big hope of Europe's remaining left-wing liberal democracies? Daniela, do you think that uh, Emmanuel Macron finally killed off his Trump bromance with that speech? Well, I think a couple of things are, are going on here. First of all, European leaders in general, I think, are slightly recovering from their trauma uh, and their shock at what's happened in, in the last 18 months uh, with the Trump presidency. And they're trying to starting to bite back and make it quite clear that they need to be more aggressive. I mean, you look at the, the efforts that were taken to keep Trump away from Putin. So uh, man up. For instance. Well, yes, man up and in some cases woman up as well. Um so I think that's that's part of it. But I also think you know, the, you, know you make a, an important point. I mean, there is a vacancy not just for uh, European leader, but also leader of the free world, really, since Donald Trump uh, uh, assumed the presidency, which was previously uh, the leader of the free world was assumed to be the US president. I would say since uh, since he came to power, it would have been Angela Merkel. Uh, Angela Merkel is not running for. Uh, and it's not re-running uh, in, in 2021. So that leaves a vacancy. Macron is not doing very well at home. Uh, I think he's trying to play the international statesman. And, and why not? And so, Quentin, this could be his way of perhaps uh, recouping some grace back at home and uh, taking, taking the mantle from Angela Merkel as the leader who everybody will look to. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I mean, it is quite interesting because he does seem to still have quite a, a, a popularity abroad when it's sinking a bit at home. Um, he's still a bit 
obviously gets on very well with Angela Merkel. You saw that rather extraordinary gesture she made, almost sort of nuzzling up to him at the uh, ceremony for the for the armistice. And uh, I, I think there's a real chemistry there. So uh, maybe she said to him, you know, go for it, Manu, take over take over my mantle. The other thing about him is that he certainly doesn't hesitate to be in your face. So right from the start with Donald Trump, the sort of arm wrestling that came into their handshakes. And the weird thing about Donald Trump is, and at one moment he takes offence at the slightest thing, and the next he says, you know, I'd just been at this amazing celebration in Paris, as if Macron hadn't said anything. It's kind of saving face, really, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the point that Daniela was making, the other vibe which I got from this is that, look, he's also saying, look, you might as well give up trying to appease Trump because, look, maybe it's time that we, the Europeans, just kind of got together and stood up for ourselves because we're not going to get anything from this guy, really. That's yeah. the reality. I, and I think that is where they've got to. I mean, look, they, you know, the Paris Climate Accord... Iran and sanctions, all these things that the Europeans said very, very clearly, we would regard these as hostile acts. And to hell, it made absolutely no difference whatsoever. So I think there's that. And the other thing is clearly, on the home front, there is Macron facing... I'm not um, in. Indif- he's. It's a serious challenge, really, from the French National Front, the Front National, in the European elections. The sort of elections where people tend to cast their votes for extremists, and he's facing a serious nationalist challenge. So this distinction that he makes between nationalism and patriotism. I actually rather sympathise with. I mean, I think you've probably got to define it even more. I'm not sure I like either nationalism or patriotism. And that's the problem. The president does have to. He, he does have to, I guess. But but even though he's tried to make that distinction, Daniela, and given that you do have these EU elections coming up and uh, the French, obviously, members, they will select people to represent them, this difference isn't really going to wash with the voting public, is it? They'll just see this as yet another example of um, liberal left-wing, talking, woolly talk. Well, Macron's problem, one of his problems, is that he's seen as the leader of the elite rather than the leader of, of, of France in general. But of all countries, really, France itself has a problem, as Quentin said, difference, differentiating between patriotism and nationalism. And um, Macron himself had to fight a, a second round against a national front uh, candidate for the first time in, in almost a generation. This is a serious problem. And on the local level, the Front National have significant power as well. So he can make these distinctions on the world stage. But domestically, I'm not sure how much of an inroad uh, he has made or, or society has made in, in changing this uh, this political culture at all. As Quentin said, the Front National is slowly creeping up mm. uh, as Macron's popularity is falling. And, and they have cross-appeal. They're not really restricted to, to one group of individuals. I'm sure there are many people who would vote for them who would say, well, look, you know, we're not fascists or anything like that. We just have a love of our country. We feel that uh, perhaps an agenda hasn't been followed and uh, the Le Pen family or whoever is, is the one to lead it because perhaps France has, has never really exploited its full potential because it has, it has listened to the 
these left-wing governments. I think you're being a bit over-generous, actually. I mean, just a love of your country? No. This is a pretty nasty anti-foreigner, xenophobic who There are those who wouldn't actually say we don't identify with xenophobia, but they have still voted for it. That's the point. It's that cross-appeal. Yes. A bit like Trumpism. Yes. I mean, clearly there are some, but there is a core of support there that is actually really quite unpleasant. And, uh, OK, I mean, Marine Le Pen, the daughter, has certainly started to try and move the whole thing away from the anti-Semitism and anti-foreigner rhetoric of her father. To Jean- focus on, on anti-Muslim uh, sentiments. Mm. So replacing yeah. one group with another, basically. Indeed. So, I, I mean, I, I, yes, it's appealing to... A I think the worrying thing for Macron is that she's appealing to quite a lot of young people. Mm. And that's rather different from what we've seen in Britain, for example, with the pro-Brexit vote, which is very much a vote of the old against what the young want. In France, there's quite a lot of young people who are actually voting for the Front National. So Macron's got to be both um, quite glamorous, youthful and so on. And his problem, uh, precisely as Daniela said, is that he's actually seen as a member of the elite. Mm. That's his problem. Can we take it back as well to um, to the speech? Because yes, it was a very powerful speech, a very charismatic speech. But I guess that by singling out Trump and Putin and various others who may fall into the undesirables club, you're basically isolating them. And if you like, by isolating them, encouraging them to retaliate. That's the point, this sense of somehow feeling that we're being picked on. Yeah, but the the approach, as the approach towards Trump thus far, has not worked. This is a conciliatory uh, point of view. I think we need to be very, very clear uh, towards actors such as Putin. Uh, you have to be proactive in defending. I mean, one doesn't want to talk about European values because that's slightly... Uh, what are European well, values? Well, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But I don't think that we should worry about antagonising them. I think... Right now, especially with, you know, Quentin mentioned the B word with Brexit. uh, I think these kinds of stances are are more important than ever. And, yeah, it's posturing and grandstanding and statesmanlike speeches. But that also has some value on its own independently. He he did actually use the word moral values, didn't he, to, Mm. to make that distinction between nationalism and patriotism, that nationalism in the way he saw it, and I think Angela Merkel used uh, some qualifying word on nationalism, you know, the aggressive nationalism or something like that. Mm. And he said, no, it's our moral values are part of our patriotism. And, okay, what do you look for there? Well, one of them is actually tolerance and understanding. And Mm. I think that's what he would challenge the narrow-minded sort of America first or indeed Putin nationalists or indeed Polish nationalists or Hungarian or maybe Italian mm. nationalists. Well, well, look at the, the, certainly the Polish, the, the, the Polish story at the moment because, again, there is that very obvious overlap. But what, what is so fascinating is that you could argue that Macron, the, the stance that he's taking, it, it's, it's not just, if you like, um, telling the, the liberal democracies, look, we have to approach people in a new way, perhaps perhaps meeting the extremists on their own ground by reclaiming patriotism and actually making it clear what nationalism is, that it is it can be very, very nasty, it can be destructive, but it's perfectly healthy to be a patriot. And uh, at the same time, I guess, combine that with a soft policy, the, the, the softness, the, the, the soft strategy. And I'm thinking in particular about the monocle survey about soft power and how, how you can use it. I mean, when can soft power ever be a replacement for, for sort of hard knuckle bone diplomacy? 
Well, it was a very sexy subject, soft power. What, about a decade ago when Joe Nye came out with his idea that, um, you know, soft power was what really mattered and forget about boots on the ground of soldiers and so on. And uh, I think everybody found this really rather appealing. We'd do more in terms of development aid, export of culture, sport, music, whatever it was, and that would really boost the brand, if you like. Mm. And I think lots of people rather bought into this. The Brits bought into it. And here, very interesting, we see France always regarded as a bit arrogant in their nationalism. I certainly don't exclude the Brits from being arrogant either. But the French, seen as rather arrogant, suddenly emerges as top yes, in, top of in this the survey, Monocle poll um, as for soft power. Coming above Germany, the two countries that are top, clearly, France and Germany, a very interesting judgment. The Nordics, who you might expect to be higher up, just a little bit further back along with the Canadians. Yeah, but also when it comes to soft power as a replacement for hard power, I think if you look at the spread of countries that focus on soft power, they're also quite big on hard power as well. I mean, France's military uh, is is something that they take very seriously. Um, I mean, not ranking them in order in the monocle, uh, listing, but countries like India, which has massive soft power in, in the region, also focuses on its hard power as well. In Israel, uh, Israel is working with very mixed success to try and increase <laughs> its soft power, and clearly there. Uh, military hard power is a national priority. But do, do one should note that, yes, France, which does have a pretty effective military, is number one, but two Germany, three Japan, four Canada, five Switzerland are all countries that would be perceived internationally as being, you know, if not neutral, then fairly feeble on the defence front for different reasons, history and so on. And there's only number six you get the UK sliding down the scale mm. post Brexit, um, Sweden up, Australia up, and the US down. It's, Ooh. You know. <laughs> Mr. Trump, take note. Well, look, we've been talking about Europe. Let, let's stay with Europe because last weekend, of course, Poland marked the centenary of its independence with a march that attracted more than 200,000 people. Although the turnout was bigger than the previous year, it was marred by the presence of European far-right activists and other extremists who were allowed to join the march on the condition they refrained from violence and hate speech. Well, according to observers, there were far fewer overtly racist symbols, although there were Celtic crosses and other emblems of white supremacists. Um, didn't sound like a terribly nice occasion, really, did it? But um, I guess if you went there to um, to, to express uh, your, your right-wing credentials, then yes, it was a great day all out. But look, this is this tilt to the right, very damaging for Poland, given that it was the president and the prime minister who actually led the march, which they saw as a bit of a compromise in some ways. Basically, this is bonkers, really, when you look at it, that the government negotiates with the far right about sharing this, this national uh, this national day. And, and it should be a day of contemplation more than anything. Fine. I mean, it, it turned out, I mean, this isn't, this isn't even dog whistling, is it? I mean, this is just like on the level discussions, let's power share almost. Uh, I'm really not uh, reassured at all that there were fewer overt 
displays of of racism than there were last year when it was just sort of organised on its own accord. It, it's a slightly different celebration, though, in Poland because it's very much a celebration of their independence rather than of any armistice or end of the war mm. and so on. So where in, in Paris and in London you clearly saw that element come through and the reconciliation with Germany, Poland was very much a we're marching for mm, Poland. It's gone in the other direction. Yeah, and then I, I think the other thing that one ought to note is that actually the rather liberal mayor of Warsaw um, tried to ban the march mm. and actually was overruled by the courts as yes, much that's as by right. the government. So he, there was a bit of a backlash, but I think she clearly saw it coming that it was going to be this pretty fiercely nationalist celebration. They had the Italian nationalists up and mm. some of these... And they, are, had, they had quite a few uh, groups coming in from Europe. I mean, you yeah. mentioned there the Italians also coming in from the, from the Netherlands as well. But I mean, you know, Poland is traditionally a very, very conservative country. And in the past, I suppose, some would say that given the strength, the position of the church, for example, that it could perhaps exert some moral influence over all of this. I mean, where is the voice of the church? I'm not sure it's, it, it's about religious influences. I mean, I think, uh, you know, 100 years since this Polish independence, you look at it longer, hundreds and hundreds of years, nation, national identity has been defined by occupation and having your power taken away from your successive waves, whether it be Russia or uh, communism. I mean, really, Poland has only emerged as a sovereign democratic state since the end of, of communism. This is very recent. And uh, I think a national identity that has so much to do with this idea that you have to defend your national interests and you've been so much under threat, and this is not by any means unique to Poland, I think there's a very fragile relationship with democracy. I mean, there's a, a lot that people need to prove. And since 2015, that's what's disturbing about this. We have this trajectory that uh, national politics has followed, notably the uh, attempts to... Uh, make it illegal to talk about Polish uh, involvement in the Holocaust, for mm. instance. The identity is, it seems to be getting f very vulnerable, very fragile in some senses. And I think that is the, the issue. I don't think that the moral influence of the church is one that can play a decisive role here. But there is, there's an interesting facet here, both in Poland, which we've also seen in Britain, in the American elections. The if you like the liberal left or whatever you like to call it, is taking over the cities. We saw this mm. very much with the Democrats in America. Warsaw is a, is a liberal city and it's the countryside and indeed a, a countryside rather dominated in Poland by the, by the church that is much, much more conservative and you've got a deep divide. And it's exactly the same in Britain. Sorry, mention the B word again, <laughs> Brexit. You saw that vote. It was all the cosmopolitan conurbations that voted to remain in the European Union. Sure. And it was outside that people felt left behind and pretty miserable and they and voted to why they cling to, the, to, to, these, to these extreme groups. But I guess that the danger, and, and you alluded to this at the beginning, Daniela, is this fear that perhaps the far right could become a normalised fixture of Polish political life if you've actually got the president and the prime minister leading this compromise of a march. Well, this isn't just Poland. In Poland, this is quite an extreme example, but this is the case uh, all across Europe. And I've always been fairly blasé about the situation in Britain. We've all, we, we kind of get embarrassed by marches and funny uniforms and this kind of being really, really overtly 
racist or xenophobic. And the best we can do up to now has been UKIP. Um, politically, the BNP didn't didn't go anywhere, so on and so forth. But I am getting increasingly more worried since Brexit has unleashed these sort of voices. It's more the political dialogue and, 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 and social discourse has deteriorated so much. I think this is a, a Europe-wide problem and not one that, that we in the UK are immune to and not one that Brexit is going any way towards solving. It has given credibility, it's given mm. visibility to some pretty nasty expressions and thoughts. Sure, and certainly when you try to to compromise with these people, as we saw here in terms of working with them for this march. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Daniela Pellet and Quentin Peel. Coming up next, can Gaza's unofficial ceasefire hold up after a botched Israeli border raid kills 10 Palestinians and one Israeli soldier? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive Travel Guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. Still with me are Quentin Peel and Daniela Pellet. Now, an unofficial ceasefire in the Gaza Strip is in danger of collapsing after two Hamas commanders were among 10 Palestinians killed during a botched undercover operation by Israeli forces. One Israeli soldier was also killed. Now, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was in Paris for the First World War commemoration, was forced to cut short his visit. So, can the ceasefire be saved? I mean, I guess, Daniel, you have to ask yourself... What actually prompted the raid? The sceptic within me usually says that timing, there's something significant about the timing. What prompted this and why was it so mangled? Well, Hamas have claimed that this was an assassination attempt on a on a senior level commander within their ranks. Um, the guy who died was not actually that senior. And Israel has many ways of assassinating uh, uh, Hamas leaders without actually doing a ground operation. I mean, the Israelis have been very cagey about this, but it seems that the raid was more an intelligence gathering operation um, or perhaps to do with the the fact that there are a couple of Israeli captives still in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, these things do go wrong. I mean, Israel carries out uh, undercover operations uh, in very uh, hostile environments across the region. So it's inevitable that sometimes, yeah, it does get botched. Um, more than that, uh, the problem with these escalations is they are just riddled with cliche and you have to say neither side really wants a, a war right now and both sides are trying to step back from the brink. I mean, we've seen a, a barrage of rockets on southern Israel in the last few hours. Mm. And which is a predictable response in some ways. A predictable response, but all these, these things have their uh, gradations and... Hamas has got quite a lot of, um, has saved quite a lot of face by the fact that a very senior Israeli soldier, a commander, uh, was killed in the raid, so they can claim credit for that. And so while they're launching rockets, there doesn't seem so far to be an 
an all-out assault, or there, there have been some uh, serious injuries on the Israeli side. Mm. But, but Quentin, again, coming back to this issue about timing, it was a very high-stakes game. We don't know what the motivation is. We have the official explanation from the Israelis, but um, as Daniela said, there could be something a bit deeper going on behind the scenes. But you've had uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu saying that he wants to stabilise Gaza. You've also had negotiations going on between Egypt, Qatar and the UN to mediate some form of a truce. So this, um, given, given those forces, this may seem a little bit reckless, to say the least. Yes, yeah, certainly unhelpful. I mean, it is very odd. One, that you had a, yes, a very senior lieutenant colonel. I mean, that is a senior mm. Israeli officer who was shot dead. Um, <laughs> this wonderful, I, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, strange description of the half the occupants of the Israeli car apparently appeared to be dressed as women. It, yes. <laughs> you would think that uh, they would have been rather obvious. Maybe they ran into an ambush or maybe something happened that actually exposed them and then it, it blew up. It's obviously, I mean, it is a fantastically tense situation, but normally the Israelis are very good at their intelligence and they really do pinpoint where mm. people are um, and so on. So at least they have that reputation. So a clumsy act like this is is just out of place. Mm. But it's, it's the danger, I guess. It, it's what it could actually trigger. Because, yes, Danielle, as you said, it's in the interests of, of both sides to maintain some form of a peace, however easy, uneasy, I should say, that may be. But it's still the resentment that it feeds into that 10 Palestinians have been killed. And also as well, um, the desire to have some form of avenge for that in Israel itself, because, you know, a, a, a member of the military has died. I have to say, I, I disagree um, a little. Uh, Israeli uh, special forces and international uh, spy agency have got a great, great reputation and which they trade on as well. But things do go wrong. Operationally, uh, things quite often go wrong. And in fact, you know, one very senior um, soldier was killed and another severely wounded, but they weren't all ambushed and, 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 and kidnapped. And I don't think in operational terms it was such a disaster for Israel. And again, I don't think it was an assassination attempt because that really doesn't make sense. But I guess the question has to be, can this ceasefire hold? Because it was looking fairly fragile beforehand. And in light of what has subsequently happened, it, it is on the. It, it could potentially collapse. Well, Netanyahu rather unusually made it explicit that he wants a ceasefire to hold and he believes it's in Israel's uh, interests. But really, the, the ceasefire in the situation with Israel and Gaza is not really an end to into itself. It's not like other situations where you could have maybe exchanges or encounters between populations. I mean, Gaza is closed off completely. It's incredibly hard to get in. It's incredibly hard to get out. The situation there is, is, is dire from a humanitarian and social perspective. And certainly Israel is not looking at the long game. It's, not, it's looking at tactically how can we maintain this and how can we keep the status quo, which is pretty much uh, the central part of, uh, uh, of Israel's policies towards the Palestinians, whether in the West Bank and Gaza. So a ceasefire is important in itself, but it's not part of a, of a wider move towards any kind of, uh, of resolution or long-term improvement for the people of Gaza, or dare I say, any kind of sovereignty. Mm. And, and Quentin, um, Daniel mentioned there how Benjamin Netanyahu cut short his his journey in, in Paris. Came has, come, has either come back to Israel, or indeed maybe on his way back to Israel. But there are divisions within his own government between the Hawks 
and the very big hawks, some perhaps who feel that he's being a bit too soft in his handling of Gaza and that maybe this is the wake-up call he needs to yeah. toughen up. I, I mean, I think there there will be demands clearly from within his government for a, a very um, aggressive response, and certainly bombing raids have happened and and so on already. But it's interesting. I mean, I think Daniela may be right that there really isn't a desire to let this blow up at this stage. It wouldn't suit anybody. We're going to have always enough excuses for things to blow up and we've got the Americans moving their embassy and, and now isn't it Brazil is going to mm. follow suit and so on so um, those things are all going to be pretty explosive. Okay let's move on now to our final subject have you ever wanted to leave your job but you haven't quite plucked up the courage to walk out? Well the Japanese startup company Exit may be the answer to your prayers. For $440, it will spare your embarrassment and your blushes by handing in your notice on your behalf. All you've got to do is keep away from the office and find yourself another job. It sounds a bit too good to be true, really, doesn't it? I mean, would, I, would either of you guys ever use this service if you were in that position that you loathed your boss so much you didn't quite have the guts to say, do you know what, get out of my face and out of my life. I'm, I'm done here. Uh, that sounds. I mean, that sounds like a great opportunity, and I would not outsource that for 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 anything. No, I mean, I, I think British people could use the app for for other more uh, socially awkward situations. Uh, obviously, breaking up with someone very useful, and perhaps uh, the app would be useful. Uh, you know, I've been in that situation so many times in restaurants where the service has been awful and the food has been disgusting, and then uh, the waiter comes over and says, "Everything all right?" And everyone at the table goes, "Oh, it's fantastic! It's fantastic!" So that would fill quite a particular British need, I think. But is it is it an app, or does a human being surely arrive and actually say, you know, uh, so you almost whistle them in from the street and say to the maitre d', but your service was disgusting when you haven't <laughs> dared to say it. I, I totally agree with Daniela that I would really miss the opportunity to slag off a horrible mm. boss. But have, have either of you ever quit a job like that? I mean, I... I... Well, I personally haven't done it, but I certainly came across a very scurrilous story of somebody who did do it and it involved a very famous television presenter. I'm not going to say who she is. <laughs> I've fantasised about doing that very many times. But no, not yet, not yet. But never say never. I've been on the other side, I fear, where perhaps people might have walked out on me. <laughs> You've both been very, very coy about this app, I must say that. But look, that brings us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellet and Quentin Peel, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Mimon. Our studio manager was Christy Evans.